Thank you, John. One, one well-wisher over there. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and uh, take them out and turn to the book of Ephesians. Ephesians has six chapters, and we will not finish tonight, in case you're wondering. The book of Ephesians, we're calling the book, we like to title the books, is just kind of a get us to thinking about what the theme is in these uh, books. It's a a letter, and uh, so we're calling it Riches and Responsibilities. And the reason for that is chapters 1 through 3 are a description of the riches that we have in Christ. And then you'll notice if you turn to chapter 4, what's the first word in chapter 4? Therefore, yes. So in chapter 4... It basically takes all of the riches that are explained to us that we have in Christ, and it then says to walk those out practically. So he begins from verse 4, or chapter 4, I should say, uh, through chapter 6, to begin to talk about how the riches that we have in Christ, how they get spent how they are exercised. It's very difficult to exercise ourselves in the doing of the things of God without being deeply grounded in the riches that we have in Christ. And so it is from those riches that we exercise those riches. And so the focus in the beginning is that those who are born again would truly understand all that you are and all that you have in Christ. And I believe to appropriate chapters 1 through 3 in our own personal life is to get the believer to live up to all that God has for us. So it would be sort of like, Say you had a billion dollars in your bank account, but you never accessed it. You wanted to save it. And so your tires on your car are wearing out and your radiator's broken and you just don't want to get into your bank account. So you just keep going like this and you're living as you're a poor person when in reality you have this bank account that you can get all of this money out that you need for whatever you need above and beyond anything that you can ever spend all that money on. So this is what the Apostle Paul is trying to get to explain and get to understand the the people that were in Ephesus. Now, um, this book is kind of interesting because unlike 1st and 2nd Corinthians and unlike Galatians, which you remember in those Uh, In those books, there were specific problems that Paul was dealing with in specific churches. So in in Corinth, there was actually a church at Corinth, Calvary Chapel Corinth, it was called. (laughs) Not really, but it was a church in Corinth. 
maybe the first church of Corinth or something. And there was an actual church, and they had actual specific problems. Those specific problems were being addressed in, in his letters. Um, in the book of Galatians, uh, Galatians it was uh, a group of churches in an area, the area of Galatia. So like a Denton County or something like that. So he was addressing specific problems that were happening in that area of the churches in Galatia. Ephesians, we don't have any specific problems. We don't have a specific church addressed. So um, it was probably a, a letter, most commentators feel, that was circulated around to sort of be uh, a primer for Christian theology and what it means to be a Christian and not so much to deal with specific problems within the church. And so as we go, start going through this, especially uh, in chapter 1, really pray and ask the Lord just to minister these truths about who you are and what you have in Christ. And I would encourage you to go back to those things constantly because, again, to do that is to put ourselves in a much higher plane of life that we're supposed to live in Christ. And it'll help us even if we're in despair or a ditch or we're in a, a really a difficult place in life. As we start to, to, to really appropriate all the things that God has done for us, it, it can't help but just lift your heart and your mind and your trust and your faith and your appreciation and your thankfulness for all that God has done for you. So with that, let's jump right in in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. Very important, as Paul is pointing out here, that every believer understands that they have a calling from God. And there's a general calling that the Bible spells out very clearly for all believers. And then there's a specific calling individually for each one of you and I. The failure to walk in God's calling as a believer will bring about a lot of uncertainty in our life, a lot of confusion, um, a lot of exasperation, trying to do things in our own strength and our own ability. And so as believers, first, look at what the Bible says and know that you're called to do the things that the Bible says. So just start there. And then begin to ask yourself, Lord, what's your specific calling for my life? Another way to look at that is, Lord, why am I here on this earth? There's a reason you're here on this earth. And it's, it's not just some general thing. It's very specific that as God knitted you together in your mother's womb, that he had a plan for your life. And to live in that plan and in that calling is truly to live for the purposes of God that He's given to us on this earth. There's nothing better than living for that purpose. Paul knew his. And that's why he said 
that he was an apostle by the will of God. Now, it's, it's important that we don't try to be something that we're not also. And that's what also causes a lot of confusion and a lot of burnout and frustration, really, trying to be something that we're not. But when we, we're serving and operating in exactly what God has called us to do, there's great freedom in that. And there's great satisfaction and great fulfillment. So Paul, right out of the gate, he says he's called to do what he's doing. And he writes this to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus. So you, you might want to circle that, that phrase, in Christ Jesus, in the first 10 or the first 13 verses, that word or that phrase is used 10 times. So it's a big deal to be in Christ. That's what he's, he's getting at, that you're saints, he's saying. And the saints that he was addressing, they weren't special people called out who did special works to achieve the ranking of a saint. It was all of the believers were considered saints. And it wasn't because they did certain miracles or did certain great exploits for God. It was because they were in Jesus. How did they get in Jesus? How does one get in Jesus? We're told, if you flip over to verse 13... Here's how you get in Christ, in Jesus. In verse 13, it says, In Him you trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having what? Having believed... Then, subsequently, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So turn back with me. So believing and trusting in the gospel conveys a person being in Christ. And being in Christ means that subsequently the Holy Spirit comes and indwells in the believer. And it's the Holy Spirit of promise which means that we are given the guarantee. When we have the Holy Spirit, we are given the guarantee that we will make it to where we are going. We'll talk about that more in a minute. But the, to understand that that part is important for what's coming up about how we're in Christ. So in verse 2, he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here he begins the blessings, the riches. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So he starts off with, this enormous statement, 
And then following that, he starts to kind of explain every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. So there's, there's so much in there. We're not going to go deep in, into that verse, but it's important to know where all the blessings are. They're in Christ. So it's, it's not in going to some special service to get blessings. It's not in what we do to get blessings. It's not in a, a pastor who can convey special blessings if you're a believer, you already have the fullness of every spiritual blessing. In other words, there hasn't been anything left out. You have everything. And they're spiritual. So you can't take this and say, well, I wish my car was better, my house was better, or my neighborhood was better, or my clothes were better. He's talking about spiritual blessings, which are far better than material blessings. And he's saying that we have every, every one of them. There hasn't been one left out. So everything that is God's is, is ours. And because we are in Christ, that's where all the blessings are. They're in Christ. Then as believers, as we live and walk and enjoy our life in Christ, living by faith, that's where we experience the fullness of everything that he's given to us. So, so many times, and you, you remember Jesus in the Gospels, he talks a lot about not looking for a sign and not being sign-driven or miracle-driven or needing like all this extra stuff to keep you going and keep you energized in the faith. Because to walk in Christ, to live by faith in Christ, is the biggest miracle and the biggest sign and the biggest spiritual supernatural event that could ever happen to a person. And if you're a believer, then you have that already. The, the, the key is to, to walk in that. When we start to walk in our flesh or walk with our eyes in covetousness and the things of the world or look to the things of the world for fulfillment or look to ourselves for answers or look to other people or other things for answers, what we're doing is we're going away from all that we have in Christ. So this is exciting because as we begin to see this unfold, but what we can realize is as those who have everything, now we simply need to walk by faith and there's nothing beyond or outside of that. There's nothing greater or bigger than that. Christ has given that all to us. So he says this, Just as he chose us in him, there's that in him, in Christ. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. So there's there's part of those riches, those spiritual blessings that he chose us. When did he choose us? So that's where it starts getting into these big dialogues and debates and things like that. Suffice it to say that we became in him 
at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13. So we became in Him. This does, does not say that before we existed and before anything existed, God randomly or somehow chose certain people not to believe in certain people to believe. The Bible is clear about God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever would believe would not perish but have eternal life. So God doesn't want anybody to perish. It wouldn't make sense if He just made someone like a robot with no free will and no opportunity to choose Him and they are destined to hell knowing what the Bible says about that. So how do we reconcile this? Well, the Bible's clear God chooses us. We're reading that. But the Bible is also clear that we have a, a responsibility as well. So they both exist. How exactly does that all play out? I don't think that we can really know for sure. I think somewhere in heaven, those, those paths cross of our free will and God choosing for me, it's helpful to look at it like if you and I were, so, so if you and I were going to pick a, a team, a basketball team, and so say one of you is up here, say Chris was up here with me, and Chris is looking out, and he's, he's going to pick the tallest person maybe. So he's looking out, and you'd have to all stand up, but he's looking out and thinking who's going to be the tallest so maybe he would choose David. But David's already told him, hey, look, if you choose me, I don't want to be on your team. So don't pick me. So if Chris was smart, he wouldn't pick David. He would pick somebody else. I think that's a good way to look at how predestination and election and all that kind of works. God chooses us, but we have a resp responsibility to respond to that. So another example would be, uh, so say there's a plane leaving from DFW to LAX tonight. So the air traffic controllers and the pilots, they have a predestined flight. They pick the route, the times of departure, the times estimated time of arrival, the course they're going to take, all those things. They've factored all that in. So it's predestined to go from Dallas to L.A. But it's not necessarily predestined that we're going to go on, on the plane. We're going to choose. If we get on the plane, then it's predestined to, to go there. That's where it's, So we know where it's going to go. It's predestined to go there. But we also have a responsibility to get on the plane. And so I think that is helpful in understanding this interplay and maybe not complete and maybe there's different ways to look at it. I get that. But don't get so hung up on that that you fail to look at what's really obvious in the text and spend most of your time on the things that it's, it's hard to understand fully and completely. So let me read that again then in verse 4. Just as he chose us in him, 
before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to him, to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. So he's explaining the predestination start. Predestination just means predestined. It means that to those who are in Christ, this is where they're going. The predestination part is being explained to us and spelled out. We're being told that when one comes to Christ, when one, as in verse 13, responds to the gospel by faith and puts their trust in Christ, when they do that, from that point on, they're predestined to go on this journey with God to have fulfilled all that God has planned for that person who is in Christ. What are those things that to the person that's in Christ, you might want to say, what are they signing up for? And if you're already a believer, what do you already have? Well, one, you're holy before God. So right there, that's an immeasurable rich riches to be holy before God, a holy God, a God that's so holy that we can't stand in his presence without being annihilated. The God that's so holy that Moses, when he asked to be in the presence of God, he was just, he had to hide in a rock and catch a little of the afterglow. The holiness of God that no human can stand before, that now being in Christ, we are able to stand before God in his holiness, in God's holiness, because we are in Christ. That's what allows us to do that because we're in Christ. We have a, a picture of that with Moses when he asked to see God and, and God said, you can't handle it, but if you hide in a rock and I pass by, you can see my afterglow. And that's a picture of us hiding in Christ as we're in rock, the rock, Jesus Christ, and we're able to behold the glory of God. And so it's only as we're in Christ that we're before God the Father is holy. So that's a huge one. So you can just put that in your bank account. It's already in your bank account, I should say. So remember that. Now, why is that important? Because so often Satan trips us up to make us feel like we're horrible, we're dirty, we're filthy, we're vile, we're yucky, whatever word you want to say that Satan tempts us to feel like that. But when we're in Christ, positionally, we have been made whole and clean before God the Father. So holiness, that's a huge one. And then he says, without blame. Now, it feels terrible to be blamed for something, especially 
when you know you did it. And our sin has been wiped out so much that we are not responsible for it whatsoever. That we can't be blamed when Satan comes to point his finger at us. Remember that the riches that you have in your bank account spiritually before God is that you cannot be blamed anymore. And that's because you're in Christ. That's because it's not your own righteousness. And you see, if we have a works-based righteousness or a what-we-do-to-be-good-and-right-before-God type of righteousness, you see how Satan could come and, and blame us? See, you're not that good. You tried to be good. Look, look at you keep failing. You keep falling. You're not that good. The whole point of grace is to realize we're not good. But he is good. So our standing is in Jesus' goodness, his holiness, his blamelessness. And this is the riches that a believer stands in. This is what it seems like to Paul. He just can't even comprehend how amazing this is. So then in, uh, also involved in verse 5, it says, We've been adopted as sons by Jesus Christ. So we were once afar off, estranged. And through Christ, now he's brought us to himself and made us his family. And he's done that according to, so he's, he's working, his, his motivation is according to his good pleasure of his will. So it was, it was God's pleasure and his desire to do this work to bring us to him in Christ to make us holy and blameless before God the Father. Verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace. What that means is what God has done in Christ to bring us to the Father, to reconcile us back to the Father, when He does that, we actually bring glory to God through our relationship with God. So, for example, if you became a billionaire and you have that bank account with the billion in it, and the way you got that was you inherit it. Somebody just gave it to you, your long-lost uncle. So as you spend wisely your inheritance, it brings glory and honor to your long-lost uncle who gave you that inheritance. So that's why he's saying to use the riches of Christ so that God would be glorified, so that people would know and understand how good God is and how much He cares and how much He loves us and how much He was willing to do for us. This is one of the reasons so important that we don't walk in our own self-righteousness because that takes away from what Christ has done. Verse 7 
In Him, we have redemption. So that means that we've been bought back, that we were in slavery, that we were like slaves, and then Christ paid the price to get us back and free us from slavery. That's what redemption means, and it says He he did that with His own blood. So that was the price of our redemption. So now tell me, if we pause here for a second, tell me how it's possible to be saved another way. It's just ridiculous to get into these conversations to say there's other ways to heaven or all religions, if you're sincere, are pretty much the same. They're not. None of them have this and Jesus being the Messiah and the Savior like this. Because sin was the problem and the only way that sin could be alleviated would be a sinless one would pay the ransom and the price. All others were slaves and slaves can't redeem other slaves. You had to be free and Jesus was the only one that was free because he was sinless. And sin is what makes us a slave to sin. So we have redemption through his blood. Then he says we have forgiveness of our sins. And if you're wondering how, he tells us how according to the riches of his grace. So this forgiveness It comes through His grace, meaning that it's favor given to us by God that we have not deserved or earned or merited. And this is something that is seen as a richness, a rich, uh, rich, richness of God. The riches of God is His grace is so lavish, and He lavishes it upon us. And we are merely the recipients and the benefactories of this incredible thing that God has done for mankind, especially those who have received and put their faith in Jesus Christ. So in verse 8, He says, which He made to abound toward us, in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in Him. In Him we have attained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, that we 
who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee in our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. So this is why I believe it's not possible to lose your salvation if you truly have your salvation. I will agree that there are many who believe they're saved and aren't really saved. And there are many who will say at one time they were a Christian and then now they're not. But what, what we see here, there's many other places, but I believe the discussion should be more around are you truly saved and not around someone that's truly saved can they not be truly saved anymore. Here we see that what happens when we're saved is we receive the Holy Spirit, and it says as a seal. Not the animal, but like a letter that you would put a seal on the letter or a wax imprint. This would be very pertinent to someone living in the area of Ephesus, which was a major seaport. So they would have ships and goods coming in and out of the port at Ephesus. And when you would send or ship something to the port of Ephesus, you would put your seal on it, and that would be an identification when they received the goods in Ephesus. They would look at that seal, and that seal would say where it's from and whose it was. So Paul is using that reference or that illustration to say, if you're a Christian, you've been sealed. You've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives inside of you, and that is a guarantee. The Holy Spirit inside of us is a guarantee that we will get to where God is taking us, and that's eventually to be with Him face to face. And so the seal of the Holy Spirit, if someone has the Holy Spirit, the Bible says they are a new creation in Christ. The Bible says in John 3 that you have been born again. It uses these terms like this, eternal life. So all of those terms and phrases are terms of something that God holds for us and not one of us could be separated, Romans 8, from the love of Christ. Nothing, no power, no entity can separate us from the love of Christ. Now, the real question is, are you truly in Christ? Are you truly saved? That's the real issue. And if you truly are born again, you're a different person from the inside out. You're not perfect, but that you're different. You have different desires, a different nature, different uh, motivations. The way you see the world is different. 
and your direction is different. You used to be going that way, and now you're going that way. And sometimes maybe you fall back a little bit, but you're still going in the direction that God has called you to go. And so the Holy Spirit is the seal or the guarantee, and that should give us confidence. That is God who saved us and God who sealed us and God that will get us to where he's taking us. Verse 15, he says, Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give you thanks for you, do not cease to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayer. So here's one of the prayers of Paul and a really fun, interesting thing to do is to find the prayers of Paul in the Bible and really study them and look at them. Fascinating. Here's one of them. He's praying for those believers in Ephesus that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, meaning He's praying that they would really understand who they are in Christ. That was His big prayer. And man, wouldn't that be something you would want for someone you really care about that's a Christian? That they would really know what they have and who they are in Christ? That's what He's praying. Hey guys, I am praying for you. I, I heard about you, that you're, you're doing, doing well, and I'm, I'm praying that, that you would, would know, truly know, that you would have wisdom and knowledge and understanding. So it tells us this sort of a spiritual revelation. It's not a, just an intellectual thing. He says in verse 18 that the eyes of their understanding being enlightened that you may know what is the hope of His, of God's calling, and what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. So you can go home tonight and start praying this over your friends and your loved ones. Lord, open their eyes that they would see and they would know and they would understand with supernatural spiritual knowledge what is the, the, the riches that they have in Christ and to understand the hope that they have in Christ, all that God has done for them. This is life-changing for someone. So he, he's saying that it's possible to be a true believer and really have a very little understanding of who you are and what Christ has done and the, the gravity of your position in Christ. Verse 19, And what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe according to the working of His mighty power? which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead 
and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. This is saying that the same power that rose Jesus from the dead is the same power that a believer has to walk out the Christian life that God has set before us. That we don't have to do it in our willpower, in our own strength, but He has actually given us the power, the resurrection power to live out the life that God has set before us. Now that's exciting. That's huge. It doesn't allow us to have excuses to say we can't do it. If we're saying that, it's probably because you're trying to do it in your own strength. But we have the power that rose Jesus from the dead. And he's telling us to understand, to know that our eyes will be open to realize all that we have so that we can live fully for him the way he's intended us to live. In verse 21, he says, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. This, this power, there's, there's not a competitive power to the power that God's given us. This power, we, we should know that it, it's to be used to walk and live in Him. That's what the power is. It must not be possible then to do that on our own if we need the supernatural power to do that. I believe that is one of the biggest mistakes that we make as Christians, and it's very common to all of us, is that we don't walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. We're saved by the Spirit. We may know that. But then we try to walk in our own strength and our own power. And because of that, we fall every time. The life of a Christian is the life of power in the Spirit. And it's not just for spectacular things that we might think about. We need the resurrection power to walk by faith and obedience just every day. To do that is the greatest miracle of all. It's greater than giving sight to the blind or stopping the wind or whatever miracle did. The power to walk out the life that God has put before us by faith, we need the resurrection power to do that. We need to walk in the Spirit and not in the flesh. So in verse 23, he says, which, oh, I'm sorry, verse 22, he says, and he put all things under his feet and gave him, Christ, to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. And what, he, what he means by that is Christ is all, 
And so in the church, this is what's so important, and this is what Satan attacks and tries to tempt us away from constantly in the church. The church is simply to operate under the headship of Christ. The church is not intended to take matters into their own hands and do their own thing. We are the body, Christ is the head, so we get our orders from Christ and we simply carry out those orders as Christ direct us, directs us. And so the church should be spending its time in prayer, in the word, in fellowship, in prayer, and those things are enough to bring about the working of Christ within the church. And whenever a church feels like it needs to do something to help the power of God out, spicing it up, more gimmicks, things to get people motivated, quote-unquote, in the flesh and excited and constantly having new things to present so people can stay engaged and excited when Christ isn't enough, then that's just the work of the flesh. If Christ isn't enough, nothing's going to be enough. And this is what he's saying. Christ is the head. And we are to spend all our time in the power of God, operating in the power of God to do God's will. And as we do that, he will do amazing things in our lives individually and in our church life corporately. If we would, as a body, surrender and trust the power of the Holy Spirit and live in that, we wouldn't even be able to handle it. It would be so out of control in a good way. It would be, people would be coming from all over to experience the authenticity and the truth that sets people free and the power just simply working through people's lives just like that. But instead, we often replace man-made things for the power of of the Holy Spirit working in and through the church. So chapter 2. And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. So two things. Trespasses is just doing what we know is wrong and still doing it. Like just being strong-willed and saying, I want to do this, so I'm going to do it. I know it's wrong, but I'm going to do it. Sins, sin means missing the mark. So we're trying to do the right thing, but we're missing the bullseye. That's what it literally means. So two ways to look at the fact that, that we were, were dead. And the, basically, the point is that when we're, we're without Christ, we're dead in our sins. And, and that, that word dead is important because it suggests that we can't sort of improve ourselves. You don't see a, a corpse going to self-improvement seminars. They're dead. Before we knew Christ, we were dead. We are dead spiritually. That's what it means. We are completely dead. We had no existence, no pulse. We are dead. A dead person can't make themselves alive. 
And that's why it says here that we were dead and he made us alive. Our sins made us dead. Sins, sins make people dead. And we needed someone to make us alive. And only one person could do that, Jesus Christ. He says now he's talking about our former life before we are saved. Some of you might refer to that as your BC days, before Christ, in which you once walked. That just means you just lived your life according to the course of this world or the, the world's plan. So before we're saved and made alive spiritually, what we do is we just live according to the world's rules and their plans and the structure of the world and the things of this world. We just do that. He says that this course of the world is according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. So being in this world, there's a power of evil, the prince of this world, that's Satan, and he has power over those who are in disobedience. So we're naturally in disobedience to God and Satan comes and sort of supercharges our rebellious heart against God. And because of that, then he sends us in a, on a course that is away from God, apart from God, and will eventually lead to us experiencing the wages of sin, with the, which is death, eternal separation from God eternal hell. Among, in verse 3, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as others. So that's our condition before Christ. And here's one of my favorite phases in the Bible. This horrible description of a horrible life in slavery to Satan and darkness and sin. But God, everything changes there who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And it makes sense if you understand we are dead, right? So to think that if you're dead that you can do something to improve your situation like do good works or be religious or fulfill religious obligations and the point is we're dead so you're dead spiritually he had to make us alive and in order for us to be made alive it had to come from a source outside of human nature and the fallenness 
of sin on those who are tainted by sin, and that's the gospel. In verse 6, he says, He raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Doesn't that sound like vacation? You've been taken from this horrible, miserable, dead in sins condition. And in that condition, without you doing something to get yourself out of it, He raised you up and you sit with Him free, holy, blameless, adopted, redeemed by the blood of of Christ in the heavenly places. Verse 7, that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of the grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. So grace, all of what Christ has done, through faith, how we access all that Christ has done is simply by believing, trusting. So for by grace, all that Christ has done, you have been saved. We access it through faith and not of yourselves. So that might be an area you might want to underline. There's, there's nothing in us that we ever did to save ourselves. Could not be more clear. It's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Verse 9, not of works. Again, could not be more clear lest anyone should boast. If it were by works, it would be a competition. We'd all be able to say that we're good or we're able, we were able to do this and we did that. And he's saying all of that is completely irrelevant to your salvation. So then in verse 10, as saved people, here's what we are. We are His workmanship. And that word is where we get our word poem. All right, I think that's amazing that God looks at us as his poem. We are his story. We are a reflection of his goodness and his grace and the beauty of what he does in saving a soul. We are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, man, think about how far we've traveled in the last few minutes of being dead in our trespasses of sin and living according to our own lusts and according to the prince of this world. We went from there to being God's poem that He now 
has laid out. This is very important. If you're a believer, he already has a yellow brick road all the way laid out. We don't have to lay it out. We don't have to make it up. We don't have to manufacture it. It's already there. So if that's the case, what's our job? To walk on it. How do we do that? We do that by walking by faith. So one thing I like to pray every morning is, Lord, help me to walk in whatever you've set before me today, whatever good work you've set before me. And at the end of the day, I like to say, Lord, thank you for those good works that you laid out before me. Thank you for those opportunities. Thank you for those difficult things. Thank you for those great things and fun things and surprising things and amazing things. But as the day is going on, I'm always praying and thinking to myself, Lord, help me to walk in your good works that you've set out for me. Help me to not stray and do my own thing or get into my own path, but just help me to walk in those things. And this is what it means to really to live out and walk the Christian life. In order to do this, we have to continually keep our eyes on Jesus. We will be tempted to put our eyes on ourselves, And that's a sure way not to walk in the good works that God's laid out before us. So we keep our eyes on Christ and we remain and abide in Him. Do the best we can to stay close to Him, be aware of Him and ask for His will and His plan. And we just walk. We just walk. We just live in that. And it's amazing because if you do that, there will be a day you'll be able to look back and say, that was amazing. There'll be, if you walk this out a little bit, there'll there'll be this uh, realization of how good God is and how thankful you will be for the hard things, for the times where you wanted something, but you knew it wasn't God's will, so you didn't do it. And you can look back and you see, oh, praise God for that. Thank God for that. His ways are perfect. They're higher than our ways. So we seek Him and we seek His will and we walk on this path and He's already laid it out and it's amazing. And this is something I wish that every believer would just get a hold of is this these good works that He's laid out and they go all the way to Jesus to the time that we stand before Him face to face and the time that our race is over. They go all the way to the finish line, to where he says, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. This is the life of the believer. This is how it works. So verse 11, it says, Therefore remember that you once Gentiles or Gentiles in the flesh who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. So the Jews were calling the non-Jews names, I guess. <laughs> Made in the flesh by hands that at the time 
you were without Christ. Man, what a tragic statement. And I think back to the time that I was without Christ. And just, just remembering that is enough for me to fall down on my knees and be thankful that I'm not without Christ anymore. To be without Christ is to be empty, is to be dead, is to be directionless, is to be confused, is to be a slave to sin, is to be caught up in the things of the world and the despair. And this is really sad because this is what we see going on in our culture today, people without Christ. And there can't be too much more sad than that being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers for the covenant covenants of the promise having no hope and without God in the world but now in Christ Christ Jesus you who were once afar off have been brought near by the blood of Christ Jesus. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, the wall that separated us from God and separated us from others, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in the ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, speaking about the reconciliation that Christ made to bring us into fellowship with God, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preaching peace to you who are afar off and to those who were near, for through him both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now, therefore... You are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom... The whole building being fitted together, this is the body of Christ, grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. And so those are the riches, some of the riches of Christ. And we'll continue in chapter 3 looking at some more of these riches and this understanding of all that God has done 
And so I encourage you to meditate on those. There's a lot in there, very densely packed scriptures, and to continue to meditate on the goodness of God. And if you are saved, if you are a believer, just think about all that God has done for you. And let the riches of Christ be ever before you. Regardless of what you're going through, always remember who you are in Christ and what He has done. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this evening. We thank You, Lord, for how good You are to us. And Lord, I, I believe that the things of Your riches, we need to meditate upon those. Lord, help us to spiritually understand more and more of, about who we are in You and what you've done for us. I pray if anyone here is struggling with condemnation, feeling like they don't measure up or they're not good enough, help them, Lord, through these scriptures to appropriate the truth about who they are and what you've done and help them to stand firm on those things. For you are good, Lord and your mercy endures forever. So thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, God bless you guys. Have a great night, and Lord willing, we'll see you on Sunday.